I'm John Moe. On this week's Wits, author Neil Gaiman joins us to read the winners slash losers of our Bad Gaiman Challenge. We asked you to write your worst fake Neil Gaiman stories, and you delivered. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Yeah, probably. They are pretty fun, though. The boy's name was Boy. Because that's what wolves know to call boys. And besides, the name Wolf was already taken. Also, music from My Brightest Diamond. I tried to do it all right. I went down, down, down. Working my little delight. I forgot the sound. It's all on Wits, coming right up. So bright, I cannot hide them. So heavy, I cannot mind them. From APM American Public Media, this is Wits. I'm John Moe, coming to you from the Fitzgerald Theater in downtown St. Paul, where, as we record our program, it is autumn, moving toward winter, the season where God tries to ice murder all of us in Minnesota. I'm not from here, and the first time I visited Minnesota in the winter, I saw on a street corner... I'll never forget it, an upright sleeping bag and a string and a blur at the end of the string. And only upon careful examination did I realize it was a person walking their dog. (laughs) In the dead of winter, summer can seem impossible. How can one ever wear shorts, we think. But... I've been thinking about summer a lot lately, being outside, grass between your toes. And I've also been thinking of stories of dread and foreboding since Neil Gaiman is on our show this week. (laughs) I was a kid in the 1970s, and back then, Satan was everywhere. (laughs) The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby had permeated culture and trickled down to kids' imaginations. I was terrified of being possessed, and I didn't care how unlikely it was said to be. Satan was my Ebola. (laughs) Now, I lived in a time and place where all the neighborhood kids just roamed feral all summer long, dirty, on BMX bikes, no helmets, no safety. And there was this house on our block where every Saturday night, a bunch of cars parked outside. And then people got out of the cars and went into the house. And these were new neighbors. They had no kids. We had never met them. And all of us kids were instantly convinced that these people were devil worshipers. (laughs) They were running a church of Satan. It was the only explanation for having house guests. (laughs) So one hot summer night, we decided to spy on them, as one does. John Kroll, down the block, took charge since he was already a bully, so a form of leadership came naturally to him. (laughs) We waited until it got dark, and then he stationed us each in various places in a perimeter around the Satan house. I was placed in the decorative shrubs between Satan house and my friend Sean Wilkerson's house. And there, alone, crouched in shrubbery, I discovered the feeling of despair because I realized... We have no plan. 
we haven't thought this through. We are small and weak and they have Satan on their side. (laughs) If they catch us, we will be killed. If we escape, our parents won't believe us and we will be killed later. There is no scenario in which we are not hastening our own ritual satanic sacrifice. As I fretted, John Kroll came running by. So we all came out of hiding and ran to him. I pounded on the windows, he panted. And then I ran, here. Well, were they worshiping Satan? He didn't know, but let's all wait here across the street and see if they come running out to catch us. (laughs) And so we did. (laughs) Dirty suburban kids on Satan patrol. (laughs) We waited nothing. Parents started calling us in for the night. We went home and we never found out. We got a great show. Our house band. We got a great show. Our house band, John Munson and the witnesses are here with us. We're joined this week by author Neil Gaiman and musical guest, my brightest diamond. Honey, I am so excited to see this house. This real estate guy can't be the same Neil Gaiman, right? The writer? No, well, it's totally his picture on the bus bench, so... uh... Uh, My ears are burning. Oh, Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm Neil Gaiman, the writer. But my true passion is real estate. (laughs) Or rather... Unreal estate. (laughs) I sell unusual homes. That's why my company is called Alternate Realty. (laughs) So, been house hunting long? Feels like forever. Funny you should say that. (laughs) This house is... Forever. Oh, good. Um, wait, what? You could literally get lost in this house forever. It will change your perception of everything you hold dear. Also, you may fall in love with the open design kitchen. Oh, oh. I didn't know about that. That sounds oh, great. I really want to see it now. <laughs> uh, Neil, why is it totally dark in here? Because this foyer doesn't exist. Just keep walking. (laughs) Anywho, how's this for a living room? Ooh, I like it. This is amazing. (laughs) Twelve-foot ceilings, and from this window, a lovely view of the park. It's beautiful. And from this window, the large scorpion cluster nebulae, whose color and vibrance have been rumored to cause madness. Oh. Wow. I... uh, My God. I can't stop looking at it. (sighs) Let's draw these curtains for a moment and move on to the bedroom. Honey, wake up. Someone's in our house. What? what, What's happening? Beckany, Jimothy, don't panic. (laughs) It's me, Neil Gaiman. What? Oh, hey, Neil. What are you... We were sleeping. I'm showing 
these people the house, seeing if we can make a sale. Hi, I'm sorry. You, you have a lovely home. We're not selling our house, Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm selling it at a different spot in the chronology loop. You will sense each other's presence at times. A chill on your neck, a tingle in your nethers. <laughs> Nothing too disturbing. Ah, okay, that, that doesn't sound so bad. Also, you'll be able to smell each other's farts. What? <laughs> Moving on. From here, you can see the garden. Holy smokes, how far does the property line extend? Well, the house does sit astride a rift in the space-time continuum, which means the square footage of the property is infinite. Bad news, we may not find our way out of here for a year or more. Good news, time in your real world will not have passed. I feel like you should have told us about all this stuff up front. I did. I made a point of it. You said you could get lost in this house forever. I said you could literally get lost. <laughs> in this house forever. I, I made sure to say, literally. <laughs> now, I have some other beings ready to make an offer, so if you want it, we need to move quick. Oh, you know, I, honey, I love the square footage, but I hate the madness-inducing scorpion nebulae. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure what we'll do with an infinite allotment of extra time. How do you fill your time, Neil? I write books and comics and, and movies. Do you think someone just existing in normal time could create as much as I do? Well, maybe I could finally finish that semi-autobiographical collection of short stories. If you must. Did I mention all new stainless appliances in the kitchen? Whoa! Way to bury the lead, buddy. We'll take it. <laughs> Terrific. Now, please put on these transference cloaks and clutch these vials of invisible screaming and we'll start the paperwork. Sarah Warden as the wife, Mike Fotis and Janie Winterbauer as the other couple, Neil Gaiman as himself, me as the husband. She has made music with the Decemberists, Sufjan Stevens, David Byrne, many others. She has also released four critically acclaimed albums on her own, the most recent being This Is My Hand. Please welcome Shara Warden, also known as My Brightest Diamond. Below the 
Diamond with John Munson and the Witnesses. More with My Brightest Diamond and author Neil Gaiman in just a moment. This is Wits. I'm John Moe. Hey, you want to see Wits live? Well, we have some great shows coming up. On May 1st at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, we'll be with comedian and actor Cristela Alonso. She's the star of the ABC comedy Cristela, and she's one of Variety's top 10 comics to watch. Am I ever going to pay off my Montgomery Ward's credit card? No? That store hasn't been around for 10 years. I 
still owe them for a VCR and a pair of LA gear I don't have anymore. Really? She'll be on stage with singer-songwriter Ryan Bingham. Ryan used to ride bulls in the rodeo. Seriously, now he writes songs. He's got a new album out. American Songwriter says it's got some of his finest, most emotionally revealing material. I've been carrying my trouble, strapped to my shoulder. And on May 21st, we'll be in Austin, Texas at the Paramount Theater with comedy legend Fred Willard. Hey, what happened? You know him from Best in Show, Waiting for Guffman, Anchorman, Modern Family, the list goes on and on. Plus the Texas musical treasure Shiny Ribs and singer-songwriter Carrie Rodriguez. Tickets available now at witsradio.org. This is Wits. I'm John Moe, here with music guest My Brightest Diamond and author Neil Gaiman. He's the author of many best-selling, award-winning, beloved works, including the Sandman series, Coraline, American Gods, and the Graveyard Book. His latest story, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, was voted Book of the Year in the British National Book Awards. Neil Gaiman, welcome back to Wits. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. The Ocean at the End of the Lane... I don't want to give too much away about a boy in a small English village who runs into some trouble, finds help with some neighbors who may not be what they seem. How did the story come about? Well, the story came about because I missed my wife. It's the first novel I've ever written accidentally. How do you write a novel accidentally? Well, what you do is your wife goes off to Melbourne, Australia to record an album. And you are in Florida and you miss her. And up until that point in our relationship, you know, she'd be on tour and I'd phone her and I'd say, I miss you. And she'd go, I miss you too, honey. And it would be really beautiful. I'd never had to deal with her making an album before. This is his wife, Amanda Palmer, by the way. So I would phone her up and I would say, I miss you. And she'd say, yeah, that's great. We've got to get this arrangement done, darling. I'll, I'll check in with you in a day or two. And I'd go, hang on. Where did my... I thought, well, I have to make her her love me again. Um, I will do something romantic. I will do a romantic... I will write her a short story. And I will put things that she likes in it. She likes me. (laughs) So I will put some me into it. Um, She's really interested about my childhood, so I will put a bunch of stuff from my childhood into it. And she likes emotions... 
go figure. I'll put them in. <laughs> Big so, sacrifice on that one, right? So that was, that was my theory. I would just start writing her a short story. And then a few weeks later, I look up and I go, well, maybe it's a, a, a novelette. And then a few weeks later, I look up and I go, okay, it's a novella. <laughs> and I just keep writing it. And finally, she finishes making her album, comes back. I go out to Dallas, Texas, where she's mixing the album. I finish typing it. I do a word count, and I send an incredibly apologetic email to all my editors around the world saying I have just accidentally written a novel nobody was waiting for. <laughs> um, so that's how you, how you write a novel accidentally. <laughs> is that common to, to have somebody in mind that you're writing a story for? Is that how you usually do it? Yes, but normally the person I have in mind is me in an alternate universe. <laughs> Like a book like The Graveyard Book, I probably wrote for a sort of 11-year-old me who would have loved to have read a nice book about a baby whose family is murdered and who is brought up by dead people <laughs> in a graveyard. What child would not like to read? Exactly. <laughs> I wanted to ask about your fans. You have incredibly devoted fans, rabid fans, I think. Um, many of them are here with us this week. Do you feel a heavy burden of responsibility to them to, to be all that they want you to be? Um, no, but what I do do is feel the peculiar... I don't know if it's a responsibility, but I look around and I go, I have, you know, two million people following me on Twitter. I've got three-quarters of a million people following me on Facebook. I've got people who listen to me. Um, so at that point you start doing things that you might not otherwise do. I, I wound up earlier um, this year going to Jordan with the UNHCR, the United Nations uh, Refugee Agency, and um, visiting the, the Syrian refugee camps, which is the kind of thing that you do because you go, look, if I go there... I can write about it for The Guardian, and they will publish it. I can come and tell people, and 2.1 million people, 3 million people who would not have known about this will know about it. And even if they don't donate, even if that's all there is, they will at least know this thing is happening. So I, I definitely wind up feeling a responsibility to use my, my soapbox and use my, my megaphone responsibly. So it, it's kind of interesting. You have this awareness of the vastness of your reach and what you want to do with it. But then when you write a story, when you write a fiction story, uh, it's very, very personal. I don't think you can ever write for an audience. Mostly because I know what fans like. Fans like whatever it was I did last that they last enjoyed. <laughs> Just do and, that some more. And if you ask them, that's exactly what they would like. <laughs> they would like some more of that. And the only thing that keeps me going is the idea that there are things I haven't written and stuff I haven't done, which is one reason why I'm so absolutely rubbish at writing sequels. Yeah. I always mean to. It's not that I don't think, oh, I, this, what a great book, I will do the sequel. But you've been diverted. I do. I go, on the one hand, I know how to write this thing. I've learned how to write it. There's five million people who would love immediately to snap up that book and my publisher would start drooling if I said that it was theirs. And on the other hand, here's this thing that I don't know how to do that nobody's waiting for. I'm there. Neil Gaiman, everybody.
Neil Gaiman is a brilliant writer. The world has agreed on this. No one else can write quite like him. Or can they? No. Still, if Neil writes great Neil Gaiman stories, what do bad Neil Gaiman stories sound like? With that in mind, we launched an online challenge, the Bad Gaiman Challenge. And we asked you to submit your worst fake Neil. And boy, did you deliver. Hundreds of you submitted truly wretched, horrible Neil Gaiman stories. Couldn't read more than a few at a time before I had to get up and walk around the room a little bit. We can't read all of them on the air this week, but just know that you are all losers, and we thank you. <laughs> Nevertheless, we've narrowed down our stack to the worst of the worst of the worst. Here to read the winners slash losers of the Bad Gaiman Challenge, please welcome Neil Gaiman. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Kate Bitters from Minnesota. The world's tiniest poker game took place on the head of a pin. All the usual suspects were invited. Mary the Unicorn, Cornelius the Animate Skeleton, Wasp the Pig, and Henrietta the Imp. I stumbled upon the game when I was traveling to my grandmother's house in Mugwumpton, jabbed my foot right into the pin, and caused Wasp the Pig to spill the extra aces he kept ticked in his waistcoat, possibly tucked. <laughs> it says ticked here. It's, it's bad on many levels. It probably wouldn't have happened if the sky over Muck Wompton wasn't a sickly purple that day. But the sky rats were out and the shebores were lactating, so the sky changed and the pin was stepped on and poor Wasp the Pig was never invited to another poker game again. Wow. That's bad. This is by Alali de la Gaza from Nevada. Shadow Moon stood before the mirror, staring in delicious surprise at the malformed baby angel hand that hanged in the middle of his wide chest, his creamy coffee skin shimmering with little trembles of anticipation. This is great, he whispered. And so he put on his jacket and went out on an adventure with his loyal friend, Hanging Baby Angel Hand. It's like a fantasy nobody would want to have. This one is Peter Ray from Minnesota. John Olson's life was very bland indeed. One day, John Olson was walking home from his bland and forgettable job. It's not important what his title or duties actually were. Just be content knowing he wore a suit and carried a briefcase. On this day, that briefcase proved worthless when a sudden wintry gust blasted down the street. John Olson's briefcase was torn open and out of his hand various important and boring documents scattered down the street. John Olson spent the next few minutes grumbling softly, but not expressively, to himself as he picked up his papers. Suddenly, he noticed a large shadow looming over him. It was a girl wearing heavy-looking armor and the pelt of some animal. Her armor was scratched and rusted, but still impressive. She carried a sword nearly as big as her, which was crusted with various ikers. Her steely, 
yet youthful face, broke into a smile as she saw John Olson staring. I am Brunhild, she said, Jonathan Sanavole. I bid you good tidings. My Lord the Allfather has bade me summon you in this his time of greatest need. Will you answer his call? She held out a rough yet dainty hand to him. John Olson very slowly stood up. Nope. <laughs> David Malky from California writes, A crow, you see, knows all the best secrets about men and about wolves and about the moon and about a candle that burns down to reveal the faces of old gods in the shapes of crows and men and wolves. <laughs> and the moon. This crow was perched on a certain tree under a certain moon watching a boy who looked like a wolf. The boy's name was Boy. Because that's what wolves know to call boys. And besides, the name Wolf was already taken. By the tree. The crow knew this and other things besides. That's some bad gaming. <laughs> yep. Neil Gaiman, is that one the more. worst Neil Gaiman though? Well, actually, this is my, this one is sort of my favorite of the bad <laughs> Gaimans coming up because I think it has, it has everything the others have plus concision. Mm. Everything you want and less. And this is Corey Martin from Tennessee. So this one day, these teacups showed up. Um, Ragnarok. And that's the Bad Gaming Challenge. Here with more music, My Brightest Diamond. This is my sex, this is my hip, 
is my breast, this is my shadow, this is my hate, this is my line, my doubt, my gloom, my flame, my joy, my Brightest Diamond with John Munson and the Witnesses. Shara Warden, welcome to Wits. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, dear listeners on radio and cast upon pods, we bring interesting people on the show, interesting for the work that we are familiar with from them, but perhaps yet more interesting for the shocking facts that our crack Wits research staff has uncovered. Shocking Cheryl Warden, I will present you with a shocking fact, after which I would like you to provide some context and or explanation. Shocking fact, you considered quitting music a few years ago. I did. Um, I had a child and was just trying to figure out how to, to do all of, the, all of the things that I wanted to do. And touring and... Uh... Touring and making music and being a mother... And that seemed impossible to do all those things. There were moments of wonderment. <laughs> so why did you not quit? One day I, I was kind of, you know, just thinking, man, what, what should I do? And uh, I walked into my grandparents' apartment and all of a sudden, out of the blue, my grandfather said to me, Shara, don't quit. 
And he didn't know that I had been thinking about it, and just out of the blue, he just said, don't quit. <laughs> and so, you didn't. from then on, it's not a question anymore. Grandparents are awesome. Um, shocking fact, you sang on the television program Glee. That is true. Um, some people do, um, you know, some waitressing for their day job, and uh. I <laughs> am... And sometimes the, the hidden voice behind Jane Lynch. <laughs> ah. So you're not acting on the program. You're, no, you're no, being... I, I, I do it in a, a secret studio location, which no one will ever know about. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, so if, if you ever see, one of my favorite scenes that I did was uh, when she is, Jane is, Jane's character is dreaming of going back to high school and doing... Um, Oklahoma the Musical, and I had always wanted to do um, Oklahoma the Musical, and I never was able to, but I got to live out my fantasies, because I get to sing the role of, of, uh, of Julie in, in Oklahoma nice. for a very brief moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, shocking fact. Your record company, Asthmatic Kitty, put out an instructional video of how to dance to your song, Pressure. Uh, what, why, is, why are there mandatory dance moves to go along with your song? <laughs> you will have fun. <laughs> How did that come about? So for my new album, This Is My Hand, I wanted the feeling of the concert to be like a tribe getting together for an evening. And so I thought, well, what are the activities of the tribe? We get together, we sing, we dance, we um, clap. I wanted everybody to kind of just have these sort of coming together communal moments. And I thought, well, we could vogue individual kind of dancing, but it would also be fun if there was like a line dance. So um, we choreographed dance moves if you want to learn them for upcoming concerts. <laughs> How important is, is dance to your music? It historically has not been important at all. And uh, it's it's becoming more important because I'm trying to integrate the body into what I do. So it's it's becoming more important. Cheryl Warden, thank you for the explanation of shocking facts. <laughs> more with Neil Gaiman and My Brightest Diamond just ahead. This is Wits. I'm John Moe. Did you know we can be pals on email? It's true. If you go to witsradio.org, you can sign up for our newsletter and get the latest about what we're doing, what our various Wits guests are up to, or you can tell us what you're up to on Twitter. Just tag us. We're at Wits. This is Wits. I'm John Moe.
This is Wits. I'm John Moe, here with author Neil Gaiman and musical guest My Brightest Diamond. Pop song correspondences. A letter from Satan to his unemployment office caseworker. To whom it may concern. I want you to know that I have been looking for work trying to adjust to the modern marketplace, which is somewhat difficult since I have been the lord of the hoary netherworld for quite some time. But with hell being shut down, I gotta pay the bills on my new studio apartment. Had an interview at Radio Shack this week. I think I made a good first impression. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. Been around for a long, long year. Still many a man's soul and fate. See right there, I should get the job. Is any other assistant manager candidate at Radio Shack capable of stealing a man's soul and faith? Experience. And I was around when Jesus Christ had his moments of doubt and pain. I'm a damn sure that Pilate washed his hands and sealed his face. I threw in the part about hand washing so they know I'm tidy. I'm surprised how much of an obstacle hell is on a resume, though. People just freak out. Oh, and the interview guy asked me to describe a time I had to affect change in the workplace. So I did. I stuck around in St. Petersburg when I saw it was time for change. Killed the Tsar and his ministers Anastasia screamed in vain I rode a tank, held a general's rank When the Blitzkrieg raged and the bodies sank Again, if I can cause all the devastation of the Bolshevik Revolution and World War II I should be able to help people find AA batteries, right? Plus, I was super nice Thought I was nice. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. Yeah, I thought it'd be fun. I told them starts with an S, but they didn't want to play along. They seemed scared. Might be the horns or the flames or the stench of sulfur. I don't know. I tried to explain though that I'm actually a lot of fun. I watch with glee while your kings and queens fought for ten decades for the gods they made. Shout it out, who killed the Kennedys? When after all, it was you and me. Well, yeah, that was the wrong thing to say. The Radio Shack manager got all offended and said he did not kill the Kennedys. And I'm all, whatever, man. I'm making a larger point about the evil endemic in society. Well, at that point, I knew I wasn't getting the job. I just wanted to get out of there and make some threats on the way. Leave my calling card. So if you meet me, have some courtesy. Have some sympathy and restraint. Use all your well-learned politics, or I'll lay your soul to waste. So anyway, yeah, uh, I'll still be needing those unemployment checks. I do have an interview at GameStop next week, though. Sincerely, Satan. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my 
nature of my game Janie Winterbauer on vocals with John Munson and the Witnesses as the Rolling Stones. Support for Wits comes from Dioramas for when you want to tell the story of our shared history, but you want to tell it through just the worst art imaginable. <laughs> we get additional funding from Catcalling. Catcalling, rude when used on women and pointless when used on cats. Support for Wits also comes from Madison, Wisconsin, the largest city in America named after a really stuck-up 12-year-old girl. <laughs> and now it's time for a Wits game, a game called Did They Say It? Cheryl Warden and Neil Gaiman, I will read you a quote and I will attribute it to a famous person. Your job to decide if the famous person actually said that quote or if I'm just fibbing. You wouldn't lie to us. I would and I will over the course of this next segment. All right. Let's see how you do. Did Teddy Roosevelt actually say the following? If you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your troubles, you wouldn't sit for a week. Well, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, um, as we know, um, shooting <laughs> bears. Bears, but kicking. But kicking. But kicking. But kicking. But also kicking. But kicking. <laughs> Alive and, and butt yes. kicking. This must have been shortly before Teddy Roosevelt was famously kidnapped by aliens. Um, <laughs> I tend to agree with you, Neil. I... You think this is true? You think, you think this is... No, a... she thinks that Teddy Roosevelt was kidnapped well, by All right. <laughs> that is not actually the subject of this particular game. Okay, I think, I think we're going to say yes, aren't we? I think so. Yes, yes. we think that Teddy... Teddy Roosevelt did say that. You are yes. correct. <laughs> did Batman ever say, the irony of all of this is that I am terrified of rabies? Batman is scared of nothing. <laughs> He's Batman. He laughs in the face of rabies. He, he giggles at, at, at hydrophobia. Well, he doesn't giggle because he's Batman. That's the joke. Batman, he's giggle. I so do not, have a four-year-old, and he's an expert on Batman. I really don't think Batman is afraid of anything. Well, uh, I'm going to give you the point, but it's not because he's not afraid. It's because he's not a real person and can't say things. <laughs> mm. But nonetheless, you got it right, so uh, it will deliver. Did Ben Franklin ever say, I guess it's true what they say, there's a fine line between gardening and madness? Gardening? And madness. I've heard of a connection between genius and madness. Right. Not gardening. Not gardening and, and madness. madness. So you're going to say, no, this is not a Ben Franklin quote. You know, I mean, gardening is something that you do when you're feeling mad to yes. get less mad. We're, we're declining this one. We're declining. turning this down. We have, we Absolutely. You got that correct because it was actually Cliff Clavin from Cheers who said that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he didn't say that because he's not a real person. Correct. <laughs> wow. 
I'll give you an extra point for that. You're really racking them up. Winston Churchill said, tennis is not the sport of kings. It is a vile practice created by madmen with a love for nets. <laughs> Did he hate it that much? According to this quote, which I may have made up. <laughs> yes. I think this is one of those places where it's like, you know, truth is beauty. Mm. It is beautiful that he said that. Therefore, it is true that he said that. No, he never said that. Look, hang on. Are you telling me that that nice Mr. Keats on his ode to a Grecian urn had it all wrong? Yes. Bloody America. All right, here we go. All right. We've got one more here. Mark Twain. There are basically two types of people. People who accomplish things and people who claim to have accomplished things. The first group is less crowded. Okay, so we can do this as a syllogism. Mark Twain said sensible things. This is a sensible thing, therefore Mark Twain said it. Mark Twain did say it, you are correct. <laughs> you are winners of the game of Did They Say It? Congratulations, Cheryl Warden and Neil Gaiman for getting that right. Here with more music, My Brightest Diamond. Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me Fever when you hold me tight Fever in the morning Fever all through the night Sun lights up the daylight Moon lights up the night Light up when you call my name And you know I'm gonna treat you right You give me fever When you kiss me Fever when you hold me tight Fever in the morning Fever all through the night Everybody's got the fever that is something we all know Fever isn't such a new thing Fever started long ago Romeo loved Juliet Juliet, she felt the same When he put his arms around her he said, Julie, baby, you're my flame, thou givest fever. When we kiss a fever with thy flaming youth. Fever, I'm on fire. Fever, yeah, I burn forsooth. Cap. 
Captain Smith and Pocahontas had a very mad affair. When Daddy tried to kill him, she said, Daddy, don't you dare, he gives me fever. With his kisses, fever when he holds me tight. Fever, I'm his missus. Daddy, won't you treat him right? story is the point that I have made chicks are born to give you fever be it Fahrenheit or centigrade they give you fever when you kiss them fever when you're hoping learn fever till you sizzle what a lovely way to burn what a lovely way to burn What a lovely way to burn Want more wits in your life? Go to witsradio.org and find out how you can see a wits show in person can sign up for our newsletter, get the latest about what our various Wits guests are up to, or tell us what you're up to on Twitter. Just tag us. We're at Wits. Thanks this week to author Neil Gaiman and musical guest My Brightest Diamond. Thanks also to technical director Corey Schrebel, coordinating producer Hans Buto, and our intern Carlos Espinoza, as well as Julia Schrenkler and the staff at the Fitzgerald Theater, Tom Campbell, Aaron Cassio, Mike Wangan, Dan Zimmerman, and C. Andrew Mayer. Wits is written by me and Wendy Molyneux and Jeff Drake and Mike Fotis. We're joined this week by our music director, John Munson, and the witnesses, Janie Winterbauer, Steve Rome, Noah Levy, and Stephen Kung. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. Our senior producer is Larissa Anderson. I'm John Moe. Bye now.